Welcome to the Retire Right Podcast with Larry Heller. You deserve complete financial advice. There's no acceptable alternative if you want a plan to live well and on your terms. Complete financial advice equals complete peace of mind. Now, let's get into this week's podcast episode. Hello and welcome to Retire Right with Larry Heller from Heller Wealth Management. I'm incredibly excited today. Larry has an, a great guest on the show, something a little bit different than we've done in the past. And, and Larry has been gracious enough to allow me to do the bio. Today he has Ira Dornstein, and Ira is a baseball historian who teaches baseball history. He has appeared at the Hutton House Lectures at LIU and at various libraries and synagogues all over Long Island. Ira has traveled extensively visiting almost all of the major league stadiums and many minor league stadiums. Ira has appeared on a radio show in Florida with Jeff DeFerris. Larry, wow, I'm excited about today's show. Yeah, me me too. I thought it's baseball season. It's April. Yes, it is. And then I would bring Ira on. So, so Ira is not only a baseball historian, he's a longtime client of Hello Wealth Management. And we've had many conversations about not only baseball, but about the New York Mets. And I thought it would be great for my listening audience to hear what Ira has knowledge in his head there about baseball. So welcome, Ira. Thank you for joining me. Well, it is actually is a pleasure to do that. I know that I've known you for a long time and uh, you're really a great guy. So what, 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 let's get started, Ira, and let's, let's, let's go rip right back to the beginning. So why don't you tell us about the origins of baseball and how did the game of baseball first begin? Mm -hmm. That's a really good question, Larry. It's going to take me a while to get the answer out to you. In 1999, workers who were clearing out an old town hall building for a major, major renovation, this took place in the town of Pittsfield, Massachusetts. The workers come across a pile of old, old bylaws down in the basement. They're stashed away down there. And one of the top laws on that pile was dated 1791. And it said, the game of baseball would be banned from being played within 80 yards of the town church for fear of damaging the stained glass windows. So here is written proof that someone was playing this game in 1791 and probably even before that. Now that was 70 years before the Civil War. This took place in 1861. By the Civil War, actually, baseball was already being talked about as America's pastime. It was quite popular. The soldiers were playing it in their off time during the, during the battles during the war. Most experts at that time believed that the game was developed in England, of all places, by school kids who made it up. The game was called Rounders, and it was similar to cricket, which is also an English game. This game had very few rules. Kids got together. They made up some homemade balls out of rope or twine or whatever. They used tree branches or broomsticks or something for, for, for bats. And they just hit the ball, ran around the bases and, and, and scored point. As many kids as showed up got to play the game. It reminds me of playing stickball in the streets of Brooklyn. Same idea. You just went up there and you hit the ball and ran around and had a good time. So in those years, there was really no pitcher, but a man called a feeder. He was the least important player on the team. He just lobbed the ball in and made it easy to hit because the fun of playing this game 
was hitting, running, and scoring points. So how did Abner, how did Abner Doubleday get into the story? Most people, if you ask where baseball started from, they'll tell you there was Abner Doubleday living in Cooperstown, New York, which is a baseball shrine today. How could he have actually invented baseball since it was being played back in 1791? This was a legend, it was a lie. And let me tell you how that happened. Anybody remember a pink spalding ball you used to play with as a kid? You played punch ball and stick ball? Absolutely. Well, you hit it hit off the stoop and it would go there high. There you go. Stoop baseball. Yes. Spalding, base, uh, spalding pink balls. A absolutely. There was actually a guy named Albert Spalding, and he was a pretty good player in the 1890s. He played a pretty good game of baseball. He was also a business tycoon, and he got very involved with the owners at the turn of the century because he started to sell baseball equipment. Before that, people didn't have equipment. He started selling gloves, balls, bats, and all kinds of things. And he became very involved professionally with the owners of the teams. He also was helping them market baseball. Uh, baseball, you know, basically was being played out in the streets, was being played on fields. People could just come in and watch. Nobody paid any money for it. The players weren't getting paid anything for it. And he decided he wanted to market the game and, and sell it as, as a business, as a sport. But telling a story about English school kids creating the game didn't really make it as a good story to market this team. He needed a story that was American. And Abner Doubleday was an American war hero. He graduated West Point. He fought in the Union Army. And he probably played a lot of baseball during his off time in the Army. And they used him. As the story. What Here's year guy, is that? I, what year, Ira? Well, it, it, it started back in the, like the late 1880s. Oh. Actually, the National League was formed back in, let me see what year that was, 1876. So he was already playing baseball. And later on, as the league started to form, he became more involved with the players trying to market the game. But this is a so hundred, this is a hundred years after they found evidence that it was first played 1791 to 1890 yeah 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 wow that's why that's why the Abner Doubleday story can it can't be he he was never he was he was born 70 years later or 60 years later so that's how that came that's how that came to start just to go on with that going back to 1845 Alexander Cartwright uh, who was considered the father of baseball, actually puts out the first 20 rules. There were no real rules before that. He actually started with 20 rules, and some of these rules actually survive today. He said that the field should be diamond-shaped, and baseball fields are diamond-shaped today. He also said that instead of 21 aces winning a game, the points or runs were, were called aces. And 21, whoever got to 21 first won the game. He said, no more of that. He divided the game into what it is today. Nine innings with three outs per inning per side. Five innings made an official game. And the most important rule that he came up with, and don't ask me how he got it, was 90 feet between base. Now, 90 feet is the perfect distance. It creates a situation where almost every ball hit is a close play at first base. And 90 feet has lasted from 1845 to, to today and has never been changed. 
So that was that's, pre that's pretty. That's pretty cool. That was pretty cool. It really was. Even better, in 1857, a guy named Doc Adams, who was president of the New York Knickerbocker baseball team, not the basketball team that came much later, he actually made the, he, he was the one that actually divided the game up. I actually made a mistake there. That has to be changed. Alexander Cartwright just made the field. And besides the field being diamond shaped, he also decided that you had to tag a runner out on the bases. Before the tagging the runner out, the players actually threw the ball at the runner. And if you hit him, he was out. If you missed him, he could keep on running. A lot of players got injured getting hit by the balls. So we changed that so that you had to tag a runner out. No more throwing the balls at him. Doc Adams, the president of the Knickerbockers, changed the rule to 21 aces, which was winning a game, and the length of the games, and the perfect distance of 90 feet. In 1846, this uh, Knickerbocker team actually played the first real baseball game in history. And the Knickerbockers lost that game 23 to 1 at a place called Elysian Field in New Jersey. Now, you might ask why they didn't play the game in New York since it was a New York team. There was no room in New York City, and they forced to play those games in New Jersey. In 1856, a newsman named Henry Chadwick creates the first box score. Now, that may not sound too important, but it was. Because by creating a box score, it created statistics, which is the actual backbone of the game of baseball. It created uh, a measurement, one player against another. It connected different errors, and it was a compilation of the game. So somebody could read a box score and know what happened in each inning and how the individual uh, players played, which made it created a more, more interest in the game. All of this took place before the Civil War. By the Civil War, this game was already wildly popular and it was already being called the national pastime. To continue on in 1862, we see the first enclosed wooden fields and owners start charging admission. The players are not getting paid, but the owners are charging admission to these games. In 1866, a pitcher or a feeder named Candy Cummings throwing shells on the beach on an off day creates the first curveball. He throws it harder and it becomes really hard to hit. Of course, baseball now is a game where uh, hitting the ball and failing 70% of the time, uh, you can still go to the Hall of Fame because you're batting 300. Baseball purists originally were appalled by this. It's nice, nice to fool the batter, they said. But of course, that is the backbone of the game of baseball today, is fooling the batter and creating a situation where you don't want the guys to get on base and score runs. In 1869, we get our first professional baseball team. It's the Cincinnati Red Stockings. And this owner actually pays his players between $1,400 and $2,000 a season, which wasn't a bad sum of money uh, back in those days. All the best players that were playing baseball flocked to Cincinnati because they weren't getting paid and they wanted to get paid. So they went to Cincinnati and they actually went undefeated for two years. They had all the very best players of everybody else's team. By 1876, the National League of Baseball was formed. The first thing those owners do is set a salary cap of $800. And that really uh, got the players upset because they were making $2,000, $1,400. Now they're at $800. In 1901, the American League is formed. 
And the first thing they do is sign a gentleman's agreement, no Negroes allowed in baseball. And that disgrace lasted, of course, until 1947 with the signing of Jackie Robinson by the Brooklyn Dodgers. At this point, now we have the American League and the National League, and baseball is on its way. Wow, that's pretty, that's pretty, pretty cool. I did remember the Cincinnati being the first team. I, I always thought it was the red leggings. I don't know. I guess it's the red stockings. Red li- well, they were called, they were actually called the red legs. The red, the red legs, stockings. yes. The yeah. Red legs. That's yeah. what I thought. Yeah, yes. That was the original name. They just shortened it to, to uh, reds, reds over the years. Yeah. yeah, I wonder how many so, people uh, in our listening audience are, have any idea that Abda Double Day didn't create a baseball. I sure didn't. And I'm sure, I don't think there's going to be anybody that's listening. Uh, in I, fact, uh, if anybody, anybody uh, out there who's listening and knew the answer other than Abda Double Day, send me, a, send me an email. Let me know. How did you know that? So, Ira, it's great, great information, great stuff. It's real interesting. And I know you have, you have traveled to so many baseball parks pre pre COVID both. And we've talked at length about this, not only traveling to the major league ballparks, but even the minor league big, the minor league ballparks. And I've gone to a few of my own. So I'm curious to see which one is, uh, which one is your favorite? Well, I always love talking about baseball parks as one of my favorite things. Every one of them is different. They're all unique. So I'm going to talk about my, some of the old baseball parks first. And which ones are my favorite there? The wooden fields didn't last too long. Most of them burnt down in fires. And by the beginning of the uh, 1901, 1903, you started seeing the first concrete ballparks, which were much more feasible. They lasted a lot longer. Out of all of those old original ballparks, only two of them still survive. One of them, of course, is Wrigley Field in Chicago. The other is Fenway Park in Boston. Wrigley is known for its ivy-covered walls and the apartments across the street where people have set up seats on their roof and actually charge admission uh, to come and see the ball game uh, from outside of the ballpark. It's a very unique situation in Chicago. Uh, Fenway Park, what can you say about Fenway Park? It's the green monster, which most people, baseball fans know about. It's a very high left field wall. It's been painted green since 1946. And it's a great place. Now they have seats on top of it. And it is a fabulous view to watch a ball game from up there. I've actually been up there during a tour of the ballpark. And, and it's, it's, it's really unbelievable. Which so, one, Okay, so which one? I've been to both numerous times. I'm going to put you on the spot. Which one do you like better, Wrigley or Fenway? Well, about those two, I happen to like Wrigley Field better. It reminds me of my really most favorite ballpark, and that's Ebbets Field in Brooklyn. I'm an old Brooklyn Dodger fan. I grew up in Brooklyn, and Ebbets Field was my second home. Uh, the reason why I liked Ebbets Field, besides uh, the fact that it was the home of the Dodgers, this ballpark was, was unique among all of the unique ballparks. First of all, it, ballpark had the first padded wall in baseball history. And the reason why they padded that concrete wall it was they had a player playing center field named Pete Reza, and the guy was a maniac. He would crash into the wall trying to catch fly balls, and he really injured himself severely enough that it ruined his career. So to protect the players, he, they, Ebbets Field started padding their walls. Most walls in baseball today are padded to protect the players. 
But even more uniquely than the padded wall was the right field wall at Ebbets Field. This was a classic. It wasn't even a wall because most walls are straight up and down. This wall came in three parts. The bottom half was convex. The top half was concave. And above that cement concave and convex wall was a huge chicken wire screen framed out in wood. Moving over the center field was a wooden scoreboard. When the ball came off the wall at Ebbets Field, it could bounce in 17 different crazy directions. It goes all over the place. If it hit the bottom of the wall, it went in one direction. The top of the wall, it hit someplace else. If it hit the screen, it went someplace else. Carl Farrell of the Dodger right fielder was a crackerjack. He knew every angle on that wall. He could catch a ball. He knew where to stand to catch a ball. He could turn around. If a runner was slow enough and not paying attention, he could get him out at first base because he knew just exactly where to stand. Visiting ball players coming in there would go nuts. They never knew where the ball was going. So this was a lot of fun for Dodger fans. And of course, as a kid, I loved going there and, and, and watching those games and enjoying them. Uh, the polo grounds was very misshapen. and was actually built as a polo field. So you had very short distance down the right and left field line. Down the left field line, the wall was pretty high, but down the right field line, it was low. It was only four to six feet high. Uh, that ruined the Cleveland Indians, who in 1954 won 112 games. It was a great team. And they were heavily favored to beat the Giants in that World Series. With a giant bench player named Dusty Rhodes single-handedly won two of those games with real cheap pop flies that just cleared that 296 right field wall and that allowed the Giants to sweep that World Series. Well, going on to new ballparks, and I've seen a bunch of those. And I'm interested, Larry, in what ballparks you like the best. My best one was San Francisco. Uh, San Francisco has a fabulous view of Oakland Bay and, of course, the Oakland Bay Bridge, but you cannot see that from field level. Uh, you have to be in the mezzanine or in the upper deck to enjoy that view. There's also, in the outfield, a huge Coca-Cola bottle that's tilted over on its side, and it's used as a sliding pond. Actually, kids go up there and, and slide down and have a great time. There's a, uh, also a very interesting carving of a bridge, of, of a base, of a glove. It's a huge carving. And even up close, it looks just like a leather glove, but it's made of metal. It's an unbelievable, it's an unbelievable sculpture. Uh, so for also, me, so I haven't been to San Francisco. I haven't been to some of the really new park, really new parks. Uh, but other new parks, I liked some of the smaller, probably Petco. Is it still called Pepco, Petco Park in San Diego? I don't even know if that's the same name, but I, well, I, I like the I like the San Diego the San Diego State Stadium. As okay, far so as have stadiums. you have you seen you're talking about the new ballpark? The new one, the new ballpark. Yeah, that is one of my few ballparks that I have not seen. I am very anxious to see it, and as a matter of fact, during the COVID, I do the I do most of this traveling to ballparks with a crazy friend of mine who's as nuts as I am about baseball. And he's my travel agent. He books the flights, he gets the hotels, he tells me the thing. So right before the virus, he comes up with a trip last year, which of course the whole schedule was changed at the end, which would have been perfect because I have not seen the new ballpark in San Diego. I did see the old one. I have not seen the Los Angeles Angels ballpark 
and I haven't seen the open ballpark. I've been to Seattle. I've been to uh, San Francisco to see the Giants. I've been to the Dodger Stadium, and I've been to the old San Diego Stadium. So we planned a trip where I'm going to go to San Diego, L.A., and Oakland and see all three of those ballparks. And then, of course, the season got canceled. They played a 60-game season, and I never got to do that. Otherwise, I would have seen that park. I'm very anxious to see it. Uh, it reminds me of Camden Yards because Camden Yards is, has a warehouse incorporated in it. And so does Petco. I think it's still called Petco. Yeah, they have yeah I've, that, been to, um, I've been to both. I, I, like, Camden, I like Camden Yards. I, I just ha- I happened to like, maybe because the weather was a little bit nice in San Diego, I like the San Diego Stadium a little bit a little bit better. It also reminded me of Pittsburgh Stadium, but San Diego Stadium is probably of the newest stadiums, one of my, one of my favorites. I'm glad you met. So you, you've been to Pittsburgh. I've been to Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh is my second most favorite stadium. So we're right, we're right up there on that one. The reason why I like Pitt, there's a lot of reasons why I like the Pittsburgh ballpark. First of all, the pirate colors are black and yellow. There are three bridges that cross over a river really close by the ballpark. One of them is right next to the ballpark, which they close on game days. And it's used as a walkway to come to and from the ballpark. Also, all the seats are painted black and all the exterior trim, the concrete facades are all a yellow color. So you have this theme of black and yellow, not only in the uniforms, but in the bridges outside the ballpark and the seats inside it. It's a very interesting and, and beautiful look. And yeah, and w- walking view. across the bridges going to and, oh, and from was definitely was a lot really, of fun. really very nice. Yeah. Yes. And then I had as a as a special mention Camden Yards, and I don't know if you've ever been to Detroit to see uh, Comerica. No, I've been to the old Detroit Stadium, but I haven't ah. been to the new Detroit Stadium. The old Detroit Stadium, right? I was there the year before they knocked it down. It was a dump there, but it had some it had some kind of nostalgia feeling. But I have not been to the new park. Larry, I am sitting here smiling from ear to ear. This guy that I travel with is a guy who originally called me asking if I wanted to go on a trip to Detroit with him to see a ballpark. And I had never, I had never done that before. You know, Ebbets Field, the Polo Grounds, I, I saw, but I never really traveled out of the state to see any other ballparks. And I was disappointed because I thought I was going to see the brand new ballpark. But he said, no, no, no. They're still playing in Briggs. It was called Briggs Stadium, Tiger Stadium. Started Tiger Stadium. Out as Bri- yeah. Started out as Nevins Field, changed its name to Briggs because owners changed. And at the end, it was called Tiger Stadium. And he said, no, no, we're going to go and see the old Tiger Stadium. This is the last year they're tearing it down next year. And I said, wow, I didn't know that. Sure, I'll go with you. That was my very first ballpark that I saw. Well, you know, maybe we're there at the same the same time. The, the stadium Could was empty because the Tigers were terrible. <laughs> That's okay. all I, I, I remember that. But all right, let me tell know. you something. Let me tell you something about that ballpark. First of all, it was a great look, uh, both inside and out. But they had something very unique, which was copied by the Mets at Citi Field. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but Tiger Stadium was the only ballpark ever where the right field upper deck jutted out over the field. It was longer than the lower deck. And if you go to Citi Field today, it's the same concept. If you go in the upper deck, it overhangs the bottom deck. So if you sit in the first row, 
in the upper deck, you you get you it, you can't get that view anyplace else. You can look down and see the top of the ball player's head out there. It, it's a it's it's a great look. That's interesting. I do um, remember that from Tiger Stadium, and I do know about City Field, but I didn't realize that that's the only other stadium that has that. Yeah, uh, yeah, it, 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 it actually it actually is, and uh, I found that quite interesting. We actually went up there, and before the game started, we had we had good seats up in the front someplace. But we sat up there during all the batting practice just to get the view from those seats in the first row. And uh, it was really funny. I mean, the end of, during that year, later on, we came back. I was watching, I think they were playing, the Yankees were playing, and I was watching the game. And somebody hit a, a home run right at the seats we sat in. And my friend Roger called me, crazy. did you see that? Did you see where that home run went? We were sitting in those seats. It was, it was quite a... It was quite a thing. Very funny. So, uh, but the new Comerica is also a great ballpark because all the fixtures in Comerica look just like baseballs. They're painted white and there's red stitching painted on the fixtures. So wherever you go and you see a light, you're looking at a baseball. Also, they have a carousel at Comerica where there are no horses on it. Every single animal on that ride is a tiger, the Detroit Tigers. There's also a fabulous outdoor museum at Comerica out beyond center field and back of the batting eye, which is filled with sculptures of all the old players and the history of them. So I kind of like that as my, my third favorite. Yeah. So uh, let's switch Francisco, gears for a little bit since you have so many different stories yeah, out there. Yeah, well, yeah, what's your, what's your favorite, what's your favorite one, Ira? I have a million stories and, and my favorite one actually takes place in Florida. This guy, Jeff DeFaris, that we mentioned earlier, I've do, done some radio shows with him, is a dear friend of mine. I've known this guy forever. He originally went to Syracuse University. He lived in North Belmore, and we were pals, pals right here on Long Island. He moved to Florida, took a job as a journalist, and moved on to being a very well-known sports reporter down there. This guy had, you know, he has press passes, so I've been able to go all over the place with him. One day while down there with him, he was actually doing his show from a golf course. There was a major a golf tournament called the Cadillac Open. And he was going to do a show from the golf course, you know, and interviewing all the golfers. So I get up that morning and I happened to serendipitously put on an old Dodger shirt that I had and went, went there with him. And as we walk in through the back with my old Dodger shirt on, an older gentleman comes up to me and says, excuse me, can I ask you a question? And I said, sure, what do you want to know? He says, well, are you an old Dodger fan or did somebody just buy you that beautiful shirt that you're wearing? He was admiring my shirt. I said, no, I'm actually an old Dodger fan. He said, you ever go to Ebbets Field? And I kind of chuckled and said, yes, I have. I, Ebbets Field was one of my favorite old ballparks. And he then says to me, do you remember any of the players? I said, not only do I remember the players, I know most of their numbers. He said, really, who was number 42? I go back and, well, you know, 42 is pretty easy. That was right. He asked me, uh, test me, he asked me something hard. Well, this guy starts rattling off numbers. Who was number one? Who was number two? Who was number three? Who was number seven? Who was number 14? And he's just rattling off numbers. And as he rattles off the numbers, I'm giving him answers. And after about the 12th or 14th number, he stops and looks at me and he says, boy, you're good. You're pretty impressive. You do know all of these numbers. He said, but I'm going to give you one that you're not going to get. All right, let me have it. What is it? Who was number 31? This guy asked me. 
I look back at him without hesitation. It was not a player. It was the first base coach, and his name was Jake Pittler. Well, this guy takes a step back, grabs his chest like he's having a heart attack. And he goes, oh, my God, I can't believe I've been asking people that question for 40 years. No one ever knew the answer to that. How, how do you know that? I said, I told you, I know all of my baseball numbers. And I said, and obviously you do also. How, how do you know those numbers? He said, well, do you know who I am? I said, I have no idea who you are, but I know you're not Larry Pittler. Because when I was a kid back in the 40s, he was already an old guy with gray hair. He was, the, uh, he was a coach. I'm Jake Pittler's son, is his answer. Wow. I've been talking to Jake Pittler's son. Well, that was it. This guy was actually running this golf tournament. And the next words out of his mouth is, we have a lot to talk about. Come have a cup of coffee with me. We spent the rest of the afternoon. He told me stories you could not believe. As a kid, uh, his father took him to the games. You could do that in those years. All the players knew him. He knew all the players. He started telling me about this player was a jerk and this player was a great guy. And I used to have a catch with this guy and this guy's girlfriend. And we went on for hours and hours. We actually exchanged phone numbers. And to this day, we still speak every once in a while. And I check in on him to see how he's doing. Uh, that is. That was that basically is, my best. I have many more, but that was, I, I don't have enough time in that. But yep. that, was, that was my best one. Yeah. So that is a great story. So yeah, I'm sure we're just tipping the iceberg here. We can talk for hours more, but just so people, if you're interested in hearing more about this, Ira does teach baseball history classes. So Ira, can you tell us a little bit more about where you're doing that and how? Yeah, I, I sure can. That's really my main game. I'm teaching at the Great Neck Public School a Community Education Center, which is located at 30 Cumberland Avenue in Great Neck. And their website is www.greatneck12.k12.newyorknyus, and that's it. Are you teaching, li are you not, teaching you're not there. live there at Zoom right now? or? Yeah, well, I've been teaching there for about six or seven years. I'm, I'm teaching it live uh, right now. I'm right in the midst of teaching a class. I'm in my, my third week of 11. And unfortunately, for anybody who wants to join, uh, the class is full right now because of the virus. We've limited it to eight people, and I've got a full class. But I am going to be teaches, teaching over the summer. I'm going to be teaching a course on talking history and also a course on just current events. So that would be something if anybody's interested. I also do uh, private group lectures if anybody's interested. Uh, I do them at libraries. I've done one at a gated community out in uh, Dix Hills. You know, various if they want to get if they want to get a hold of you, Ira, what's the best way of getting hold of you? My home number, actually, I'm at five one six area code eight six eight five two three four. If you want to sign up for the classes, uh, that would be five one six four four one four nine four nine. That's the number of the school that I teach at. Great. And, yeah. So Great. I have a couple of baseball jokes if you'd like to hear those or we, we kind of finished at this point. Okay, well, we can we have time for one joke. So let's do one joke, Aaron. Well, okay, well, let me tell you then about Yogi Berra. You know, Yogi Berra, most people know him, quite a character. You know, if you come to a, if you come to a fork in the road, take it. You know, most of those things are pretty familiar. But I have a couple of little side Yogi Berra stories that you might be interested in. Just two of them if you have a couple of minutes. The first one is... 
<clears throat> Yogi lived in Montclair, New Jersey for many years, and he was very involved with his kids in Little League. He started to coach them. This is after he retired. And uh, he started to coach them. And so after the first game that they played and they won, they came back and celebrated on the bench with a case of Yoo-Hoo chocolate drink. I don't know if anybody remembers Yoo-Hoo chocolate drink. I feel it's, I think it's still around. Uh, Yogi was involved with that company. He was a marketer for them, and they also must have had some stock in the company. And so he brought in a case of Coke, a case of uh, the Yuhu. After their second game, which they also won, another case of the Yuhu for the kids. But you know, in baseball, you can't win them all, obviously. So after the third game, which they lost, back in the dugout, and there's not a bottle of Yuhu in sight. And one of the kids walks up to Yogi and says, Mr. Berra, where's the Yuhu? And Berra looks down at the kid seriously and he says, when you win, yoo-hoo. When you lose, boo-hoo. <laughs> that seems one, like, one a, more, seems just like real, a perfect yogiism. One more real quick one. He was born in St. Louis. He lived there uh, most of his life as a child. And his best friend from down the block was Joe Griagiola, who was also a pretty good catcher in his own rights in Major League Baseball. And then, and then a uh, long-time so announcer. Yeah, he has a lot of, he has a lot of roots in St. In St. Louis. So his wife one day asks him, uh, Yogi, when you pass away, would you rather get buried in St. Louis or would you rather get buried here in Montclair? And he looks at her and thinks about it for a minute and says, I don't know, Cora, why don't you surprise me? Uh, that's a good that's a good ending. That, that's a great that story to end on. Ira, so much. Thank you so much for for joining joining us today and sharing your stories and the and your facts with with our audience. And again, if anyone wants to hear more, they can take one take your class at the in Great Neck and or if somebody wants to have a private lesson or a private group, feel free to reach out to reach out to Ira. Thanks, Ira, again. Appreciate the time. Well, I want to thank you also. It was a great opportunity for me to do this, and I really enjoyed it very much. I hope I hope your clients enjoyed it, too. Well, I sure did, Ira. I appreciate you being here. Larry, thank you so much for bringing Ira on the show. Larry, do you have any closing thoughts before we finish this podcast? No, I mean, I, just anyone, again, who's listening and, and wants to hear more and, and they're not sure how to go get in touch with Ira, feel free to reach out to me. You can reach out to me at my, on my email at lheller at hellowealthmanagement.com and I'll connect you uh, directly to Ira. That is fantastic. Again, Ira, thank you so much for being here. Larry, thank you for bringing him on the show. And of course, our last thank you goes to you, the listening audience. Thank you for tuning in and listening to the Retire Right Podcast with Larry Heller. If you have not subscribed to the podcast, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Larry comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your friends and family. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at Heller Wealth Management, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time.